If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I have a question for you, a simple question, but an important question. What do you need? What do you need? What is it that would bring you happiness and contentment? What would bring you joy? What is it that you need? What would give you courage or a positive outlook on the future? What do you need? You know, we're all familiar with the story of the genie and the lamp. Uh, You know that story, folktale. Someone finds a lamp, they rub the lamp, out comes a genie, and they have uh, three wishes, three wishes. And so you can ask for anything you want except for more wishes. I know that's what you're thinking. So if we played that game this morning, what would you ask for? What do you need? You know, it's a common question uh, because it seems that everybody is working towards something. Everybody's trying to get something or be something or achieve something. So what is it that you need? So many people today are sad or frustrated or discouraged or disappointed because there's something they don't have that they desire to have. What do you need? I've got a list of things that I've heard people say they need. Some say, I need to be married. I need to be married. If I could just be married, I would be happy. Some people maybe think if they weren't married that they would be happy. Maybe you think you need a better marriage to be happy. Maybe on your list is a baby. I need a baby. I need health. I need success or recognition. I need some uh, achievement, some money, some security, a slim figure, some object, maybe a house or a car or a boat. What do you need? Now, the reason I ask the question is because 1 Samuel chapter 1 and as we'll see over the next few weeks, all of 1 Samuel and all of 2 Samuel really gives us truth about what we really need. What is it that we need? And we're going to find pure gold, I promise you, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we're going to learn something about what we need and where to find it. Uh, We're going to begin a new series of messages today. And this will take us a little while to get through, but I want to walk through all of 1 Samuel and all of 2 Samuel over the next several weeks. We're calling the series A Royal Mess, Life Lessons from Flawed Leaders. And we're going to look at Eli and King Saul and King David and some others. And we're going to learn some important lessons from their lives. And we're going to learn how these stories point to Christ. And I hope you'll be with us these next several weeks because as we go through these books, I think we're going to find the information we need, help us walk closer to the Lord, and to find what it is that we we need. Now, as I said, we'll we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 1 today, and we're going to focus on the story of Hannah. That might be familiar to you. But what's interesting about this story is it does two things. It kicks off this historical account, 1 and 2 Samuel, but it also 
previews 1st and 2nd Samuel. It gives us a snapshot of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Because in 1st Samuel chapter 1, Hannah says she needs something. She was wrong about what she needed, but she said she needed something. 1st and 2nd Samuel, the entire books, are about the nation of Israel saying that they need something. They too are wrong about what they need, but they say they need something. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah's going to figure this out pretty quickly. Uh, The nation of Israel is going to take the entire two books to figure it out. Uh, But today we'll, we'll get started and we'll see really a shadow of what we'll see played out over the next, over the next several weeks. So let's just begin to read. This is the story of Elkanah, that's the husband, and Hannah, that is one of the wives. Elkanah and Hannah. Let's start in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 2. The Bible says he had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah was childless. Now, just a quick comment there, first of all, about the polygamy. And we're going to see this a few times in First and Second Samuel. What is this about a man having two wives? Well, you've got to understand that when the Bible speaks of something like this, it is being descriptive, not prescriptive. What I mean by this is that it is describing for us what the situation is, but it is not prescribing what the situation ought to be. The Bible makes it clear from the first pages of Genesis all the way through to the end that God means marriage to be one man and one woman. One man and one woman. The Bible is never unclear or confused about that. That's the testimony of Scripture. Now, that's not what people always did. And every time polygamy is seen in Scripture, it is always cast in a negative light. And that'll be the case in chapter 1 today. Now, the other thing I want you to notice here, because it's important for the story, is that Hannah, the first wife of Elkanah, could not have children. Now, that's a difficult thing. Today, it's a difficult thing. And uh, experts tell us that one of the most difficult things a woman can go through at times is the inability Uh, to have children, that can be a heartbreaking experience. I've talked to way too many women through the years of my ministry who have asked the question, why would God give me such a strong desire to be a mother, but not give my body the ability to conceive and and have a child? And and that's a difficult question, an impossible question to answer. And, And I know that there's a lot of brokenheartedness around this. And there are people here today that are struggling with this. And there are people here today who have the scars from having struggled with this uh, many years ago. It's a difficult thing. And Hannah, she's right there. She could not have children. But if possible, it was even more difficult for Hannah in her day than it might be for women today, and for a few reasons. One is because they lived in this agrarian society, this agrarian culture, where they lived off the land. And in order for you to be able to work the farm, in order for you to be able to have enough 
food to eat, you needed to have children. And if you didn't have children, you wouldn't eat. And so children were important just for your livelihood. Secondly, in this day before Social Security, 401ks, and retirement plans, your children were your security in old age. And so when you were older, whether or not you were taken care of or not would depend upon whether you had children, specifically whether you had sons. Because your daughters would marry uh, men and they would go take care of those uh, their husband's parents. And so you've got to have sons. I'm really worried about that. I have three daughters, <laughs> very tiny retirement plan. And, uh, uh, so, but it was also difficult because the hope of the nation of Israel was that God would give them a king and ultimately a savior. And so when a woman would have a child, it was her way of participating in the, in the redemption of the nation. And she found her identity, her value, her place in childbearing. And so women in her time who were unable to have children felt useless. They were in financial precarious situation. They experienced shame. They were pitied by other people. And this is the situation that Hannah was in. Now let's continue, continue to read. We'll skip down to verse 6. It says, her rival, that's the other wife, her rival would taunt her serve, serve, severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. And so here's one reason why you don't need two wives. <laughs> verse 7, year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep. She would not eat. So there's this emotional pain that she's going through. Unable to eat, unable to uh, participate with the family. Eating was more than just consuming food, but it was coming together with the family. Uh, Hannah, verse 8, why are you crying, her husband Elkanah would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? And listen to this. Am I not better to you than 10 sons? Now you tell me, was that a smart thing for a man to say to his wife? <laughs> listen, we should never discount the pain of another person. We should never attempt to explain away the pain of our wives. Men, if your wife is hurting, your wife is hurting. And don't dismiss that. And Elkanah did. He, he seemed to be a godly man and a godly husband, but he asked the dumbest question any man has ever asked. Am I not better to you than 10 sons? Lady, ladies, what's the answer to that question? No, right? You're not better than 10 sons. Men, how should he have said that? Not, am I not better than 10 sons? But he should have said, Hannah, you are better than 10 sons to me. Okay, make a little note of that. Look at verse 9. On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. That's where they would go to worship. Uh, the priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears, making a vow. She pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me, give me. 
and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. Well, what is that about? Well, she is making a Nazarite vow, this religious, special religious vow on behalf of her uh, potential son. And this is a permanent vow. She says forever. She said, I will, you give me a son and I'm going to give him back to you. I'm going to give him to you. We'll see how that worked in a moment. And he will serve you all his life. He won't cut his hair. That was a picture of his uh, service of the Lord forever and ever. This would be his life. And so she she makes this vow. Now, you've got to understand that when she did this, she is giving up all of the benefits of a son, right? So what are the benefits of having a son for Hannah? Well, she would have the companionship of the son, right? She gets to see him grow up and see him at t-ball practice and, 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 and see him uh, embrace life. But if she's going to take him to the tabernacle and let him grow up with somebody else, then she's not going to have the companionship. Uh, the, the parenting, the mothering, she's not going to have that. She's also not going to have the benefit of his labor. He's not going to be able to go out in the fields and, and bring in uh, the harvest. She's also not going to have the security that comes with having a son who's going to get married and, and take care of his mom for the rest of his life. And, 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 and so she has given up all of the benefits of, of, of having a son, of having a son. So let's continue to read. Uh, verse, verse 12, while she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli, that's the high priest, watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my Lord, verse 15, Hannah replied, I am a woman with a broken heart and I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. So she has a broken heart. She, she says those words. Verse 16, don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been f- praying from, listen to this, the depth of my anguish and resentment. Anguish, that refers to her pain. She's in anguish because she doesn't have a, a child. And her resentment, that's her anger, is uh, resentment against, who knows, uh, the other wife or against uh, her husband or against Uh, the Lord, perhaps even. And so verse 17, Eli responded, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the request that you have made of him. And then verse 18, which is the key verse to the entire story, may your servant find favor with you, she replied. And then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. So do you see something has changed here? Because in verse 16, she can't eat. She is uh, so emotional that uh, uh, the priest, the high priest thinks that she's drunk. She is in anguish, such terrible pain. She has anger and resentment. And then verse 18, she no longer looked despondent, which means that uh, now you can see it's a visible change. She no longer looks despondent. She now has joy. She, she can eat, which means she can also now reunite with her family, even in the presence of the other wife. Something dramatic has changed between verse 16 and verse 18. And we're going to come back to that. Look at 19 and 20. The next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. 
And then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. Let's skip all the way down now. I want you to get the gist of the rest of the story. Look at verse 26. It says, please, my Lord, she said, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. So she has, uh, this is some years later, she's had the child, she's weaned the child. She goes back to the tabernacle where Eli is, where they would go annually for worship. She brings the child. Verse 27, I prayed for this boy since the Lord gave me what I asked him for. I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. And then he worshiped the Lord there. She takes her child. This is, by the way, not an encouragement for you just to drop your kids off at the church and leave, okay? But she takes her child to the tabernacle and she, in a sense, in a real sense, she gives up her son for adoption. And he's now a part of the family of the, of the high priest, of the high priest. Well, now that's a, that's a long story, uh, but there's some important truths here to learn. And, and you might wonder, why did God give her this child when he did? And why did God not give her this child much earlier? What was the point of all of the pain and the agony and the resentment that she went through? Why did God delay? Well, God delayed so that she could first learn three lessons. And really it's one lesson, but I'm going to show it to you from three perspectives. Three lessons that Hannah had to learn. These, listen church, are so important because these are the exact lessons you and I need to, need to learn today. So the first lesson, if you're looking at your outline, the first lesson that, that Hannah learned is what I really need is the Lord. What I really need is the Lord. Now, Hannah thought that she needed a baby. She thought that that would be the solution to her problem. That would be uh, the, the balm that would drive away her pain. She thought that that would bring ultimate satisfaction she thought she needed a child, but she was wrong. She needed something, but what she really needed was not a baby. Now, we see this all the time. I'll talk to women who think that if they could just get married, they would be happy. I'll talk with men who believe if they could just get that promotion, they would be happy. I talk to people who are pursuing money or degrees or family or a, a better figure or something and they think if they could just get that one thing, then finally they would be happy. That that would be the key to them loving life and they're wrong. And I think we all think like this at times. We all focus on some worldly thing or some worldly relationship that we think is the key to greater happiness or satisfaction or joy or confidence, but it's not. What happens, you tell me, what happens when a, when a bitter, unhappy, insecure woman gets married? She becomes a bitter, unhappy, insecure wife. Okay, 
What happens uh, when a a dissatisfied, discontent man finally gets that promotion? Well, he becomes a dissatisfied or she becomes a dissatisfied, discontent, discontent person with a promotion. It took many years, but Hannah finally learned that what she really needed was not a baby. What she really needed was the Lord. Now, you might say, okay, okay, Pastor, you can say that, but where is that in the text? Well, let let me show you a, a few different places. First of all, you see this in the joy that she found before she became pregnant. We've already said something happened between verses 16 and 18. In 16, she's emotional. She is out of control. She can't eat. She's filled with anger, resentment, and anguish. In verse 18, she's eating. Her despondency is gone. She's filled with joy. What happens between 16 and 18? I'll tell you what doesn't happen. She doesn't get pregnant between those two verses. She doesn't have a baby between those two verses. What has happened? What has she discovered? She has connected with God. She has surrendered to God in a deeper way. And that surrender, that connection has brought the joy. What she really needed was not a baby. What she really needed was the Lord, was the Lord. Now, let me show you another way we can see that she learned this lesson. When she gave away her son... She gave away the benefits of her son. We read it in the last verse, verse 28, as long as he lives, he's given to the Lord. We've already said the benefits of a son, the companionship, the uh, the income, the, the harvest, the work, the labor, the security. That's why you wanted a son. She gives all of that away. She gives all of it away. Why did she give it away? Because she recognizes here what she needed was not a son. What she needed was was the Lord. And a third way we can see that she learned this lesson is in her song of praise in chapter 2. We won't take the time to read chapter 2, but but what we see here in the first half of chapter 2 is this prayer she prays or sings perhaps to the Lord thanking the Lord. Now, what do you think she's going to thank the Lord for? Well, she's going to thank the Lord for her son, right? Wrong. She never mentions her son. This is her famous triumphal prayer, her prayer of thanksgiving. We won't read the whole thing, but let's look at the first two verses. And what we see in those verses, you see it is true of the entire song. It says, Hannah prayed, verse 1, Chapter 2, my heart rejoices in the Lord, my horn is lifted by the Lord, my mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. What does she rejoice? Why is she rejoicing? Not because of, of a son, not because of a pregnancy, but she's rejoicing because of, because of her salvation, her connection to the, to the Lord. I think it's interesting that she says, my mouth boasts over my enemies. Who are her enemies? Uh, well, I've I thought about that. Uh, enemy number one perhaps was Peninnah, right? The other wife that was ridiculing her. And that wounded uh, Hannah. And then enemy number two might have been Elkanah, her husband, who didn't understand and dismissed her pain. Am I not better to you than ten sons? And maybe enemy number three would be Eli, the priest that thought she was drunk and overly emotional. 
But now she says, my mouth boasts over my enemies. She says, I'm not listening to Peninnah or Elkanah or Eli. I'm getting my esteem from God, from, from the Lord, from my relationship with him. And then if you look at uh, verse 2 of chapter 2, there's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one beside you, and there's no rock like our God. She's rejoicing over who God is, not what God has done. Did you hear that? She's rejoicing over who God is, not over what God has done. She's not singing this song, this triumphal song of praise because God has given her a baby, but because she has this surrendered connection with God, she's learned this lesson. And we see this throughout the, throughout the Bible. Um, I, I thought about the Apostle Paul, and uh, if we had more time, we could go more deeply into this, but if you go to Philippians chapter 3, and you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read two or three verses, but uh, the Apostle Paul really gives the story of his life, and he talks about all the things that were successes in his life, all of the achievements, all of the things that people uh, were impressed with in his life, and there were a lot of those. And then he, what, is, what does he say about those things? He says in Philippians 3, 7, everything that was a gain to me, all of that stuff, all of those achievements, I have considered all of it to be a loss because of Christ. And more than that, I consider everything to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul said, none of that matters. I don't need a title. I don't need uh, a reputation. I don't need an achievement. I don't need an office. I just need Christ. He goes on to say, because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung compared to knowing Christ, that I might gain Christ. So the first lesson, listen, church, the first lesson that Hannah learns is what I really need in life is not blank, but it's the Lord. What I really need in life is not you fill in the blank. For her, it was the baby. But what I really need in life is not whatever that is. What I really need is the Lord. Now, we're going to make this more practical when we go to the second lesson she learned and the third lesson. But lesson number two, blessing follows joy and joy follows surrender. Now, the odd thing about this story is, and we've already pointed this out, is the point in time where the change happens in Hannah's life. So she goes between verses 16 and 18, she goes from despondency to joy. But at that point in time, that is not when she gets pregnant. <laughs> she doesn't get pregnant for some time later. So she gets the joy before she gets the blessing. Does that make sense? When, do, when does joy come? She's despondent. When does joy come? It comes next. And then when does pregnancy come, it comes down the road. Is that odd to you that the joy comes before the blessing? See, we often get this wrong in life. Here's, here's how we think that spiritual life works. Number one, we pray and request a blessing. We think that's first. Then number two, God blesses us. Then number three, we're filled with joy. That makes sense. I pray God blesses me with a house, a car, a baby, a marriage, a health, whatever. I pray God blesses. Then I have joy. The joy follows the blessing. 
And then the surrender follows the joy. So now that God has done something amazing for me, now I'm filled with joy, now I'll follow the Lord. Does that make sense? That's how I think, I think we imagine that is God's economy. You pray, God blesses, then you have joy, then you'll surrender and follow, follow the Lord. That's not how God's economy works. And that's not how it worked for Hannah. How, how does God's economy work? Number one, Hannah prays and surrenders her desires to the Lord. Hannah prays and she surrenders her desires. We'll see that more in a moment. And then, number two, Hannah is filled with joy. And then God blesses. You see how that's way different than what, the, what people often think? First, you, you pray and surrender your desires. Then you have the joy. Then you have the blessing. You can see this in Hannah's prayer. Hannah still prays for a son. Hannah didn't stop praying for a son in verse 18. But after verse 18, listen, she's not praying for a son for her. She's praying for a son for the Lord. You see the difference? Because she's given the son to the Lord. So she's not praying anymore, God, give me a son. She's saying, Lord, let me have a son because I'm giving him to you. She's praying for a son for, for the Lord. Now, why do you think God didn't give her a son much earlier? You're thinking God could have avoided all this heartache and pain and all of this, you know, if he had just given her a son way back up in verse 2. But had he done that, Hannah would never have learned that what she really needed was the Lord. Had, had he given her a son earlier, her heart would never have been so surrendered to God. You know, there are times when blessings can be curses. If a blessing keeps you from seeing your need for the Lord, then it's a curse. If, if an easy path will, will keep you from, from getting on the right path, then it's a bad path. Blessings can be, can be curses. But Hannah, Hannah learned to surrender first, then came joy. Then God could bless uh, so how do we surrender? How would we do this? If we wanted to follow in Hannah's footsteps, well, we just need to do what Hannah did. Here's how she surrendered. Number one, she prayed. That was the first thing she did. She prayed earnestly. She didn't allow her broken heart to drive her away from God. She allowed her broken heart to drive her to God. She prayed. Hannah prayed. And then secondly, we must make honoring and serving the Lord more valuable than the things we desire. So Hannah decides that what's most valuable to her is not a baby, but what's most valuable to her is honoring the Lord. And it's, it's such a commitment that Hannah makes. She says, Lord, if you do give me a baby, I'm going to give the baby to you. Because the most valuable thing to me is not something I get. It is that I serve and honor you. Now let's go back to that crazy statement that Elkanah made to Hannah. And, and it, 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 it's there for a reason. And I don't think it's there just so I can tell a joke about you should never say that to your wife. Why do you think, what, could, what is a possible reason for, 
For Elkanah to say to Hannah, am I not better to you than ten sons? Of course, the answer is no. But is that not the exact question that she has to answer before the Lord? So when Elkanah asks, am I not better to you than ten sons? Well, no, you're not. But the question is, is God better to you than ten sons? See, here's what it means to surrender your desires. God, you're more important to me than a house. You're more important to me than being married. You're more important to me than having a child. You're more important to me than the promotion. You're more important to me than my retirement account. You're more important, you're more important to me than my health. You're more important than anything. You're more valuable to me than 10 sons. See, Hannah didn't answer. I, I'm, I'm sure, I'm not positive, but we can speculate pretty clearly that when Elkanah said, Hannah, am I not better to you than 10 sons, that she probably got hot under the collar about that. I'm sure my wife would. If I just dismissed her pain and said, listen, Donna, I know you've got some hard things in life, but you get to be married to me. How hard could life be? (laughs) But I think that planted a thought in Hannah's mind. She comes before the Lord And that thought comes back in her mind, not from Elkanah, but from the Lord. Am I not better to you than 10 sons? That's that's where the rubber meets the road. What's more important to you? God or a house? God or a baby? God or a husband? God or a wife? God or... So Hannah, Hannah said, Lord, you are better to me than 10 sons. And then she said, if you give me, your, give me a son, I'll give him back to you. She promised to use any benefit that might come from the Lord as a, as a tool to honor the Lord. And so Hannah learned that blessing follows joy and joy follows surrender. Now, the third lesson that she learned is that God is up to something much bigger than our own needs. Now, Hannah, throughout the first half of this story, is focused on her personal needs and her personal problems. And she couldn't see the bigger picture. But God was up to something much, much bigger than her need for a son. And history bears this out. We'll, we'll see more of this in the weeks to come. Uh, but let me just give you a little historical perspective. The nation of Israel was falling apart. It was imploding spiritually and and in every other way. And its leader, the leader of the nation of Israel was Eli, the high priest. And Eli was a poor high priest. And he was also old. And so he wouldn't be the high priest for long. He eventually would die and one of his sons would become the high priest. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. We'll learn about those guys next week. And we're going to learn that they were even worse than Eli. It would have been a horrible thing for either one of those two sons to become the high priest. And so Israel was in a bad situation and it was about to get worse. There was no hope for Israel because between Eli and his two sons, there was nothing but wickedness. But then something unexpected happens. There's this boy that gets adopted into Eli's family 
and grows up in Eli's household that qualifies him to be the next high priest and the leader of the nation. And who is that boy? His name is Samuel. Now, if Samuel had not grown up in Eli's household at the tabernacle, he could never have been who he becomes. Samuel becomes the leader of the nation. Samuel becomes the prophet and the priest. Samuel becomes uh, the one who brings spiritual renewal to the nation. Samuel is the one who anoints the first king, Saul, and who is the one who anoints David, the king on the throne, that would ultimately be uh, the throne of Christ. All of this comes from Samuel. But listen, it all goes back to Hannah can't have a son. Now let, me, let me share with you the connection. So the nation of Israel was about to implode were it not for Samuel. But Samuel couldn't have been Samuel unless he lived in the household of Eli. And Samuel wouldn't have lived in the household of Eli had Hannah not promised him to the Lord. And Hannah wouldn't have promised him to the Lord had she not gone through this anguish and resentment of infertility. You see how it all fits together? If you look at it from a historical perspective, Hannah's years of infertility turn out to be the most pivotal event in the history of Israel and in the establishment of the throne of Christ. All of that hinged on the years of Hannah's infertility. Now, if you could have gone to Hannah at, at this early stage, when she is so upset, and you could have said, listen, Hannah, let me tell you, I know your infertility is hard, but look what God is going to do. And you walked her from, from her infertility all the way to Christ. You think her attitude would have been different? Sure. You think her pain would have been different? Absolutely. She learned that lesson. She did. She learned it between verses 16 and 18. And we know that because of this prayer she prayed in chapter 2. So what does that mean to us? You know, the struggle because you don't have that thing. Listen, let me tell you what Hannah needed to hear. God is doing something bigger than what you think you need. It, it, you, your, your attention is 100% focused on this one thing. I've got to have this. God is doing something so much bigger. And he can be trusted with that. Now, let me, let me take this whole story. I'm out of time, but let me take this whole story and boil it down, boil it down to one word. Surrender. Hannah had these desires, being a legitimate desire for a child. Hannah had these desires, but she surrendered her desires to the Lord. Surrender is both how the Christian life begins and then how it is lived. 
How do we begin the Christian life? It begins with surrender. When we recognize I'm guilty of sin, my sin separates me from God, I can never overcome my sin, I can never pay for my sin. Before a holy God, I am eternally separated from God, ultimately in a place called hell because of my sin. My only hope is to quit trying to fix it myself and surrender to what Christ has done for me on the cross. And there was a time in my life when I, when I finally understood that and, and, and embraced that. And I prayed a prayer like this, Lord, I am hopeless except for what Christ has done for me. And so I surrender to that. And I surrender to the Lordship of Christ. I give my life to Christ. I trust him and I will follow him. That's, that's how the Christian life begins. Some of you today, that's, that's the beginning you need. That's the first step you need to take. You need to surrender, surrender to the Lord. Trust the Lord, have faith in him. Trust the Lord and what Christ has done for you. Make him the Lord of your life, surrender to him. That's how the Christian life begins. You can do that by praying a prayer like the prayer I just shared. But then, listen, church, surrender is also how the Christian life is lived out. How do we grow closer to the Lord? How do we know the joy of the Lord? By surrender. I know that that's counterintuitive, but that's the story of Scripture. That's the story of Hannah. It was when she surrendered the one thing that was standing between her and God, that's when she knew the joy of the Lord. And that's when God could bless her. So I ask you, what is the one thing that you think you need, the one thing that is driving you, what do you need to surrender? I'm not saying you'll never have it. God did choose to give Hannah a baby. But it started with her surrender. What do you and I need to surrender in order to fully embrace the joy of the Lord? Head bowed, eyes closed, Father in heaven, uh, the, world, the world has this so wrong, Father, and I often have this so wrong. We think that, that we advance in life and we advance in joy because we chase after it. But I've learned this week that joy comes from surrender Joy comes from recognizing that what I really need is you. I pray for those today that need to surrender for the first time. And I pray for all of us that need to surrender every day. That you will show us what our baby is. And that we will say to you that, Lord, you are better to me than ten of those. Father in heaven, we surrender to you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing in both services.